Welcome to the Maris Review. I'm Maris Kreisman, and I'm so delighted to be joined today by Tamima Anam. She's the recipient of a Commonwealth Writers Prize, an O. Henry Prize, and has been named one of Granta's best young British novelists. She's a contributing opinion writer for the New York Times. Born in Bangladesh, she now lives in London, where she is on the board of Roly, a music company, a music tech company, sorry, founded by her husband. Welcome, Tamima. Thank you, Maris. It's such a great pleasure to be here. Yay. Um, I, the last line in your bio <laughs> uh, makes me wonder how much of this um, fictional novel has some basis in, in your reality. Well, that's a great question. So the sort of premise of two people um, going into the tech world who have basically no idea what they're doing and who are looking at it a little bit as outsiders um, definitely has parallels in my life. Um, the way in which it's not like my life is that I imagined a female founder and a female protagonist who was a coder and who came up with this amazing idea. And I can't take any credit for my <laughs> husband's startup. I'm here in a supportive role. Um, he has all the ideas. He made up all the tech. And um, it was, you know, it was an experience that was very unexpected for both of us. And for the last 10 years, one of the things I've done is just taking mental notes through the whole time. And every time I was in a board meeting or at yeah. an investment pitch and something slightly sexist happened, which is obviously a lot of the time because it's the <laughs> world of business and these things happen, I thought, I'm gonna write that down someday. And it got me through a lot of uh, slightly awkward and painful experiences. Yeah, I, the startup wife does such a great job of talking about how the tech industry likes to think that they're disrupting things, but their power structures are incredibly traditional, painfully so. It's so interesting the way in which something that is so mainstream is also considered countercultural. And I think it's one of the great marketing tools that the startup world has somehow been able to harness, which is even the way that you imagine a startup workplace, kind of like in Silicon Valley, which is like, it looks like a playground and it looks um, not like wearing a suit and going to work. And so it is countercultural. And yet it is mostly young white men running these companies, getting all the funding. Silicon Valley, the program was, you know, Yes. All male. There weren't any women in it. There were no female founders. There were, there was so in a way it was a pretty accurate de depiction of that world. Um, but I, but as you said, the interesting thing about it is that it pretends to be disruptive and when it's actually just the same old thing, just in, you know, shorts and a t-shirt instead <laughs> of in a suit. <laughs> yeah. And um, that contradiction is so apparent when Asha is, at a VC company doing a pitch and she happens to go to the ladies room to find a woman pumping her breast milk. Yeah, it's kind oh. of a moment. Yeah, she's, she's she, it's, it's funny because she asked the woman like, so why are you doing this in the toilet? And she says, well, we have open plan offices because it's just more democratic that way. Mm -hmm. I think that's supposed to be like, oh, look, we're this really friendly environment where the CEO sits on the same floor as everyone else is actually 
not including somebody who's in that situation. Um, and I just wanted Asha, because she's young and doesn't have kids, to, to have a little bit of insight into what it might be like to actually work in one of these places, as opposed to being one of the people that comes up with it and founds a company. With HelloFresh, you get fresh pre-measured ingredients and mouth-watering seasonal recipes delivered right to your door. Skip trips to the grocery store and count on HelloFresh to make home cooking easy, fun, and affordable. And that's why it's America's number one meal kit. HelloFresh cuts out stressful meal planning and grocery store trips so you can enjoy cooking and get dinner on the table in about 30 minutes or less. There's something for everyone to enjoy with all recipes designed and tested by professional chefs and nutritional experts to ensure deliciousness and simplicity. My husband and I have really enjoyed our meals from HelloFresh. I'm hesitant to say that it's easy because my husband is the one who's doing the actual cooking and I would never want to speak for him, but it seems easy and is very easy to clean up and always delicious. Go to HelloFresh.com slash MarisReview14 and use code MarisReview14 for up to 14 free meals plus free shipping. That's HelloFresh.com slash MarisReview14 and use code MarisReview14 for up to 14 free meals plus free shipping. Even though you, you didn't come up with the idea, you say, you did come up with the idea of the tech company in this book. <laughs> and you open with kind of a, a pitch um, that Asha does for um, this incubator. Um, tell me about like opening a book with a business proposal. Yeah. So I wanted, um, you know, the story is kind of like a rom-com, but the question is not like, are they going to get together? It's, are they going to stay together? And should they stay together given all the different, um, power relations that are so kind of embedded in this world that they enter? So I, the book starts with um, Asha auditioning to get into a very prestigious and secretive tech incubator called Utopia. And once she does her pitch, she finds out that they are basically apocalypse preppers and that they are there in order to create a better world in a post-apocalyptic scenario. Um, and that's what kind of brings them all together. So all the businesses, all of which I made up, not just <laughs> the one that she does, but all the businesses in Utopia. And that was a really, really fun thing for me to do. Um, I even went so far as to create a fake website for the businesses. Um, that's how the book starts is that entrance into this world. And you sort of see it from her eyes. And she's so awed by the amazing, she comes from, you know, she works in a lab at a call at a university. So she's never seen this world that feels so kind of glamorous. And she comes out and says, it's like, they all came out of a gene editing experiment. You know, everybody <laughs> looks so polished and perfect. Yeah. And the idea for, for Asha's startup, um, is very much inspired by her new husband, Cyrus. Um, and you do such a great job of um, showing us what he's like before tech, that there is that charisma that's inherent in him that of course the tech industry loves. Anybody who um, can sound really confident in what they're saying um, can be a, a hero. Totally. And uh, it's interesting because, again, you have the sense of this 
countercultural movement, but we're still kind of looking for these male visionaries. And we're used to identifying prophets with men. We're used to identifying leaders with men. And so when Cyrus gets in front of a room and does this thing where he gazes into everyone's eyes and is incredibly attractive and charismatic, they're like, yeah, we'll give you money to do that, to do your weird hippie app or whatever you think you're doing. Um, whereas if it was Asha and her kind of earnest Asian, you know, she's a coder, um, she's a little bit awkward. She just doesn't have that confidence. It, it's like, she just wasn't born with the entitlement. Um, but I think what's what I wanted to portray was that it's not like Cyrus says to her, oh, you should let me yeah. run, run the company. She says to him, oh, it should totally be you because you're just better at it than I am. And that's just what the world you know, that's just what, what we need. Um, she doesn't realize that she's kind of giving him all the power. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it's, it is still weird to think that like, if Asha is this brilliant coder, um, why does she have to be an entrepreneur as well? Like, why does every, everybody in tech have to be everything? (laughs) And yeah, Yeah, that's a really good question. And I think you know, oddly enough, Cyrus is the one who doesn't want to do it. Mm -hmm. He was like, why can't we just launch it ourselves? Why do we need to raise money? Um, But I think that they just get seduced by this idea that the more money they raise, the more people they can reach. And when they have this slightly evangelical approach to it, then it feels like, well, we just have to join that kind of culture of fundraising and VCs and startups and pitches and all that. And that's kind of how they get sucked in. Yeah. Um, tell me a little bit more about the concept of why, W-A-I, and um, how you came up with it, um, the features you wanted it to have. Yeah, so why is basically a place for people who don't adhere to an organized form of religion to get some of the benefits of religion. So community, ritual, and structure. So they have a place to go to and a community of people who share their values and their interests, but it doesn't come from above. It comes from within. Um, And it's kind of like an anti-social media, social media company. So you are not sharing photographs. You're not sharing your persona. You're sharing what really means something to you. And so you go on this you go on this platform and it asks you eight questions from like, what was your most meaningful childhood experience? What are three of your favorite things, you know, do you, do you belong to any religious tradition? And then it asks you, what kind of ritual would you like? So it's like, oh, I want to baptize my child, or I want to, you know, I want to have a bar mitzvah for my child becoming an adult, but I'm not Jewish. So wouldn't it be great if we could celebrate all the 10 and 11 year old boys and girls in some meaningful way? And then it gives you a ritual that is based on sort of the answers that you give. And it has a huge encyclopedia of all religious traditions, novels, songs, pop culture, everything kind of comes together. And it basically gives you your own bespoke godless ritual. (laughs) I love this pitch. Um, and I can, I can see that you've, uh, you know, worked out the marketing and the, like, <laughs> you've, like had to really invent this company. Um, and part of it is that Cyrus is so 
devoted to study to act like he earnestly you know he's he's charismatic because he knows a lot and he's confident in it but like tell me about transforming that uh or filtering that knowledge through an algorithm yeah so basically cyrus is what asha calls a spirit a humanist spirit guide and he's a part he does this this before she invents the app um, this is what he does. You know, people write him letters. This one couple is like, you know, we just love, the, we love Little House on the Prairie. Mm-hmm. And we love the idea of when they pray every night, you know, by their beds. And we want to do that, but we don't want to cheat on our atheism. That's what they say. Um, <laughs> and he writes, you know, he writes back to them and he's like, okay, here's something that you could say, kneeling by your bedside that respects who you are. So he does that. And then Asha takes all of that takes his brain and basically makes it into a math equation and you get this little moment of Cyrus Um, but weirdly what ends up happening is that it becomes so successful and Cyrus becomes so famous that it's it's the it they're reproducing what is kind of wrong with religion because he's kind of seen as the spiritual leader and he has an incredible amount of power and that is dangerous and that power obviously gets to his head because we're all human and that's what happens when you have millions of people worshiping you. Yeah, their startup is for re- religious replacement and yet it's it's ironic how um, similar it all feels. You um, have clearly had a lot of fun with many aspects of this. And I, I, I love, I'm gonna ask you specifically about a few things that you invented that seem very um, close to the truth. <laughs> Um, but also I want to talk about like, this is satirical and yet Asha is earnest and likable and, um, and we root for her earnestly. Yeah. So I wanted to write, um, a rom-com Maris, you know, I wanted to write a a rom-com and I, but I also wanted people to take it seriously. So I think for me, that was the sort of um, the sort of intellectual challenge in writing a story. I wanted Asha to be relatable. I wanted her to have a voice that you you would think, oh, this is the voice of like my best girlfriend. You know, she's sassy. She says the F word a lot. She says things how, you know, she says what she means and what she thinks. She's, she doesn't have a lot of filters. Um, and she's looking at the world that she's suddenly plunged into with the eyes of a person who is an unexpected entrepreneur, an unexpected success. She doesn't kind of, she's not a Silicon Valley kind of bro, right? So you get to see the world through her eyes and and that's where the satirical part of it comes in. But you also get to see how it changes her and how it affects her marriage and um, how she becomes part of a system that she never expected she never expected to be subject to the same rules as um, women who have traditionally lost their power. So if you asked her like, you know, are you a person who has every opportunity in life to succeed? She was of course say yes, you know, she, and um, that's kind of her own sort of, she calls it the immigrant mantra, you know, she's like, I'm gonna work hard, I'm gonna succeed. And then she finds herself caught up in the system despite her best intentions, and even in a way, despite Cyrus's best intentions. Sure. Um, so I kind of wanted to bring the sort of warmth of a rom-com with the bitingness of the satire. And I tried to do that 
through Asha's voice, which which I hope conveys both of those things. Absolutely, I, I, and you get at the kind of infantilizing tone that women in tech are often greeted with when the the um, organization that Asha and um, her coworkers um, join. Uh, is Girls Who Boss, which I think is just like the funniest version of Girl Boss that uh, we can come up with. And we want to look down on them, sort of, except that they're all smart and interesting and good. Absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, those of us who have the privilege of not being part of um, a traditional workplace. Um, and I don't know what your day job is, Maris, but my, you know, I write for a living and I, and I think people are probably less um, comfortable being overtly sexist in a place like a publishing um, company or, you know, when you and I are talking on our, on your podcast, but I think most women enter a workplace, which is dominated by men in which they have very few female mentors and they have to decide, am I going to live by my feminist principles that I learned in college and my women's studies classes, or am I gonna to try to get ahead in this institution? And I think it's definitely changing. And certainly if I was in my twenties now, I would have a very different relationship to the world than I did when I was in my twenties. And I would be more outspoken and I would call things out and I would say things for what they are like Asha, and I was kind of glad that I got to write her because she gave me an opportunity to say things that I possibly didn't say when I was her age, that I was, you know, uh, um, too much part of a system where women don't, you know, are well-behaved, frankly. Um, so I think it's, I think it's important for us to remember that those every day, whether you call them microaggressions or actual aggressions, there's a whole spectrum, right? There's the, the totally male dominated world in which you're basically getting ahead and no one's trying to you know, cut you down and you're basically you're doing okay. You maybe have children, your career takes a bit of a hit or whatever to like sexual harassment in the workplace, which as we know is endemic. And you know, is only, we're only at sort of uncovering the tip of the iceberg now. But most women have that experience in the workplace. And I, I think it's for those of us who don't necessarily do that for our day job, it's hard for us to imagine that. Um, so I just wanted to give a little, little taste of that really. Yeah. 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 I, let's talk about the food now, because that, that is one of my favorite things about the book. The, the descriptions of the kinds of food that the tech industry <laughs> enjoys imbibing <laughs> is, is, really amazing. Tell me about that. Oh, thanks. Well, um, well, I think I'm obsessed with food because when I published my first book, this very kind of cranky old reviewer said on TV, um, there's too much cooking and not enough Nixon in this book. I know. <laughs> that during the Bangladesh war and he wanted there to be more politics, I think. And I think, so first of all, I'm obsessed with food. I love cooking. I love to eat. I think about food. I come from a foodie culture. But I also um, was trained as an anthropologist and I notice cultural signifiers. And I think there's a language in startups that's very different from the language that you and I use every day. They have their own rituals. They have, speaking of ritual, they have yeah. their own rules and, they, and food 
um, has been the, the way we talk about food has been disrupted by technology, mm-hmm. you know, um, and the whole sort of cult of wellness. And um, so, yeah, there's a lot of things that where there's a scene where Asha and Cyrus and their friend Jules are having dinner to celebrate, you know, yeah. the fact that their company is really successful. And um, Cyrus is feeling really kind of uncomfortable about the fact that they're now rich. They're each, they've been told they're each worth $10 million. And um, his friend assures him and says, well, think of this food. Um, You know, we can afford it, but it tastes terrible. (laughs) We're not enjoying it. So, and then Cyrus is like, okay, fine. As long as we're not having a great time. And it's because everything is fermented. And that's kind of one of the jokes. Um, (laughs) Yeah. And it's, it definitely fits in with the idea that all of the hustle, all of the optimization leads you to what? Yeah, I mean, um, I think that if you asked any young entrepreneur in Silicon Valley, like, do you want to have a big exit and do you want to succeed? Of course they would say yes. And because of the way startups work, the, the, the sort of Um, time between when you first have an idea to when you wildly succeed can be very, very short. It can be like two years that you have an idea and then you IPO or you have a big exit. And so you can be 24 years old and have just made like a hundred million dollars. So that is obviously what everyone would say. I think what's less talked about is um, the cost of that system, Um, the fear of failure, the relationships that have to be sacrificed, the kind of single-minded focus on something to the exclusion of everything else. Um, So I, I, you know, I have a good friend who knows a lot of founders. She's a recruiter. And she says, you know, there's a lot of, because I was like, I'm going to write a book about startup marriages. And she was like, well, they're never going to (laughs) succeed, you know, because there's this exponential possibility of success. And then there's these massive kind of public failures and it's obviously very hard to have ordinary relationships in the wake of that. Yeah. And it's hard to even like, so much of the book is talking about like, how is why going to monetize? <laughs> like, what is their business plan? Which seems like a huge fundamental question for so many startups. Totally. And Cyrus and Asha get involved in the startup because they think that's the only way they can launch it. But then suddenly they're like, oh my God, we have to figure out how to make money. And that feels like a, like a violation to them. So, so I, I definitely wanted, I wanted them to stumble into a system rather than being of the system, because then it makes it more interesting for, the, for them to kind of translate it for the rest of us who are not necessarily familiar with that world. Absolutely. And so to that end, of course, the other thing that is part of life in a startup, that is also part of life as a fiction writer, I think, is imagining what could go wrong. Yeah, um, they do. Asha um, spends a lot of time imagining what could go wrong because she can't believe that they're so successful. So she keeps thinking something terrible is about to happen. Um, And it sort of goes along with the theme of the apocalypse that kind of runs through the book. Um, I didn't mean for there to be an actual apocalypse, but then we just ended up having one. I, I didn't, I hope I didn't bring it on or conjure it somehow (laughs) because I was writing about it, but I, but I certainly, um, 
it, that was surprising, obviously, to, yeah. to everyone else in the world. Um, but yeah, I think that she's very afraid of what might happen and what might go wrong. And then obviously it does go horribly wrong. And you, I mean, we know that something has to go horribly wrong, especially, I mean, you start out in a company called Utopia, like <laughs> you're yeah. begging us to um, feel dread. Yeah, definitely. Um, I called it Utopia because, I mean, for all the reasons that we've already talked about, but also because I, it was, it's a place that could never exist in reality. And the reason is that is not because the companies are so kind of random and, and um, unexpected, but because it's full of women founders. And I wanted to give Asha a tribe of other women who were doing what she was doing. And so one of them designs a totally silent vibrator and another one's like trying to get us to pre-agree to all of our sexual activity and all that. And I wanted, and so I wanted it to be a utopia for her because it's mm -hmm. really one of, it's a love story between her and Cyrus, but there's also a love story between her and the women in her life that I wanted to really um, center in that space. Um, that's why I called it Utopia. Tell me about some of the candidates who may or may not get in to Utopia and, and how you uh, came up with their business plans. <laughs> So um, one of the requirements of being a member of Utopia is that you have to attend the auditions of other potential Utopians. So um, there is a company called Freud's that gets in and it's a matchmaking service, but instead of asking you questions about what you like and don't like and what you're looking for, it asks you like really intense psychoanalytic questions like, what is the worst thing your mother ever did to you? Or were you held enough as a child? <laughs> and apparently Freud's has a really, really great success rate, but a very low user base because no one wants to answer those questions. <laughs> but if you do, you will find your mate because the reason we choose people is not because we both like horseback riding, but because my unfulfilled desire for whatever in my childhood matches yours. Um, so yeah, that's one of the companies that gets in. One of the companies that doesn't get in is a company where you wear jewelry that tracks all of your environmental behavior and it has cameras and it um, knows when you're recycling and when you're using too much plastic and um, that one didn't make the cut. So yeah, there's a whole drama around who gets in and who doesn't, which is very much like the startup world. Of course. Yeah. Um, and, and yes, as you mentioned, and this can't really be a spoiler at this point, like the, the latter part of your novel includes the beginning of a global pandemic. Yeah. So I um, had finished the book um, before the pandemic. Oh. And I had already written the sections in which the utopians were basically preppers. And I felt like once, you know, it was like March, April, when the pandemic was just beginning to be in our lives. Um, I thought, well, I can't write a story in which my characters are preparing for a pandemic and ignore an actual pandemic that just happened. So when I was doing my edits, um, while trying to juggle homeschooling and 
fearing the actual end of the world. I just ended the novel in the early, early days of the pandemic. So before it's actually, before any lockdowns have happened, before the virus actually has become part of our social imagination. Um, it's just something that's on the horizon. And that's um, that those sort of the closing scenes of the novel. And that's not giving anything away. It just means that the ending of it is set at the very beginning of our real global pandemic. Which again, the the feeling of dread, even though this is a romance, it's it's a it's a a scary one. <laughs> Tamima, this has been wonderful. Before we go, would you like to recommend a few books for us? Yes, absolutely. Um, so some books that I've read recently that I've absolutely loved. Um, Katie Kitamura's Intimacies, which is also out in July. I find her writing almost miraculous in the way that she's able to evoke a sense of dread and of kind of every sentence is sort of weighted with possibility and you just never know what's going to happen next. It is like the most literary kind of thriller and I absolutely loved it. Um, I loved Matteo Ascaripur's Black Buck, which was, I know, published in the US several months ago, but just came out here recently. And also Zakia Dalila Harris's The Other Black Girl. And I'm not new to this um, party. I mean, this, this is, everybody knows that this book is um, being widely read and loved, but I also loved it. And I, I love novels set in the workplace. And I think both of those um, portrayed the workplace brilliantly. Thank you so much. This has been a pleasure. Thank you so much, Maris. It's really been such a thrill to be on. Thank you for listening to the Maris Review. And check the show notes for the books we discussed on here today. And please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.